Last time we finished talking about Macbeth, Act 1, and Act 2, Scene 1, all the way to Act 2, Scene 2. And let's just start with a quote from Act 2, Scene 1, in order to get us started for today. This is Macbeth envisioning, with his very powerful imagination, uh, the death of um, King Duncan. And in fact, something you might well consider here is in this visage, this imagination that he uses here. You might want to consider whether it seems as if he has free will or whether he feels compelled to do what he is going to do. Is he being pushed forward by fate here or is he choosing to enact this fate? And he says, this is his famous second soliloquy. We will have had three by the end of the lecture today. Is this a dagger which I see before me? The handle towards my hand? That means that the blade is towards his enemies. Come let me clutch thee. I have thee not and yet I see thee still. Art thou not fatal vision sensible to feeling as to sight? Or art thou but a dagger of the mind? A false creation proceeding from the heat-oppressed brain. This will be a theme as we go through the text. The heat-oppressed brain. The brain that is affected by delusion. The physically, uh, the physically degenerated brain. Potentially even degenerated because of the actions of Macbeth. I see thee yet. In form as palpable as this, this which now I draw. His imagination is so powerful that he can almost not distinguish between reality and imagination, that which he sees within his mind. Thou marshalest me, thou push me is what that means. The way that I was going and such an instrument I was to use. This actually recalls to me a little bit the argument that Odysseus has Telemachus make in the Odyssey about why the weapons on the walls of the Great Hall should be moved. Does anybody recall that argument? What it was that uh, Telemachus was to tell the suitors uh, for why he had to move the weapons off the walls? Yes? Was it because of the fire and it would ruin the armor? That was one of the reasons they gave, that the fire and the suit from it would ruin the weapons. But that's not what makes me think of this in this particular moment. Yes? Uh, close, kind of. Yes, that is also a reason why the swords were taken off the wall, so that, of course, the suitors could not protect themselves. But that's not the argument given, of course. Yes? Right, exactly. If the suitors, uh, since the suitors sit around and frolic and drink every day, if they have weapons on the wall and they get into a conflict with each other, they might well take those weapons off the wall and then use them against each other. It's interesting. It's almost as if the dagger here is what is suggesting the action with it, just as the swords on the wall might suggest actions with them. As if the agency for this situation does not come from Macbeth himself, but from the dagger, or from his imagination, or from fate. We all know, however, from talking in the seminar yesterday, do we think it's fate that's moving Macbeth, or do we think it is his own free will? Free will, that does seem to be the idea. In any case, let's get to some free will. Act 2, scene 2, this will be... The scene in which the murder of the king, the regicide, finally goes down. Remember, this is one of our major themes, because remember, this is something that consumed the mind of our current king in England at, our, at this time, who was once a, uh, the king of Scotland, James VI, at one time, now James I. And remember that there were multiple attempts on his life when he was James VI, as well as the gunpowder plot in 1605, which almost got him. In any case, here's the plan. Lady Macbeth is going to go take extremely strong drink to the guards surrounding Duncan. They are going to drink this drink, and they are going to get blackout drunk, and they are going to fall asleep, 
and then they are not going to remember what happened the night before. Macbeth is going to slide in there, take their daggers, kill the king with those daggers, plant those daggers covered in blood on these men who will now be covered in blood. The next day, we will go into that room. It will actually end up being, I think it's Macduff or Lennox. Uh, it might be Lennox, might be Ross. We'll see it in a second in any case. I think it is Macduff. We will we'll walk in to the scene of the crime, and there we will see two sleeping guards covered in blood with the murder weapons right next to them. And the assumption will be what? That they, of course, killed the king. But what's interesting is it would be sort of hard, just thinking about this, to ascribe an intention to them. Perhaps they were enlisted by some other person to do this. But if I were really thinking through this scene, it, one thing would not make sense, and that would be, why would the guards do it? And why would they be so sloppy in doing this? Why would they? And the idea seems to be that they just got drunk, and then they wanted to kill the king. But I don't know. I don't know. I would definitely suspect some foul play here. In any case, this is almost how things go down, but not exactly. And here are a couple differences here. Upon having killed the king, Macbeth immediately experiences a change. He is horror-struck by what he has done. He is so horror-struck by what he has done that he neglects to leave the weapons that were supposed to be planted on the guards at the scene of the crime. He walks out of the room still carrying them. In fact, when he sees Lady Macbeth, she will chastise him for this. She will say, what are you doing still holding the weapons and being covered in blood at this moment? And in fact, they'll hear a knock, which will very much scare them at that time. But Macbeth shares some things that he's now heard. Again, his active imagination, which is so powerful, which according to some scholarly accounts, at least uh, Harold Bloom, uh, far outstrips his logical ability, which, you know, He's not exactly the smartest king, but he is very imaginative. But he says this, and he's so shocked, he says that he heard Macbeth has murdered sleep. What does that mean that Macbeth has murdered sleep? What does that mean that he will no longer be able to sleep? Does that mean that he himself, through his actions, has destroyed his rest in life? He will soon talk about to be king, but to be king safely is better. He will never be king safely. He will always be suspected. He will always have a trail of blood leading back to him. And then he says, and nice classical reference here, Can all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood from my, off my hand? Great Neptune, Poseidon, all the water in the ocean, can it wipe his hands clean? The answer is obviously what? No, water does not clean <coughs> blood that you take onto your hands from murder. The stain of murder goes much deeper than blood in its far deeper than simply the physical, which uh, Macbeth is in the process of realizing. In fact, it may even be spiritual, because what he says here is, he had heard a blessing said, and he could not bring himself to say amen to it. But wherefore could I not pronounce amen? I had most need of blessing, and amen stuck in my throat, he's saying to Lady Macbeth. And the whole time he's dialoguing with her, she's trying to restore calm and order to his tattered psyche here. But he, he just, he's overcome by, by his regicide, by what he has done. And in fact, it 
seems as if he feels like even God has turned against him here. Hmm. Well, in any case, Lady Macbeth implores Macbeth, uh, Lord Macbeth, to take the daggers back to the scene of the crime. He says he cannot, he does not have the strength to do it, so she takes the daggers back, and then she is covered in the blood, and now she is even more complicit than she was in the first case. And in fact, later, she will admit, who would have known that the old man's body could contain so much blood? She had been able to theoretically think about the act, but now it becomes real for her, just as it has become real for Macbeth, and just as it will have very real effects on her psyche too, because as we know, uh, Macbeth's mental state deteriorates. What do we know of Lady Macbeth's mental state during the course of the remainder of the play? It will also deteriorate. Yes. Yes, indeed. Alright. Act 2, Scene 3 is a very famous scene. Something about Shakespeare is that often you have a very gruesome scene followed by sort of a light and airy and funny scene. And this scene is often very famously called the Porter scene. And you recall reading that, and I will give you the uh, soliloquy of the porter in just a couple moments here. But basically, Macduff and Lennox are knocking on the doors, knocking on the doors, those doors that had so recently been uh, called so pleasant to walk through uh, that we had thought maybe were heavenly sorts of doors by King Duncan, but in reality we know to be sort of hellish doors because there will be blood fire and deceit in this place. And in fact, there will be many direct connections made to hell and demons and that which actually lies within this castle um, in the porter speech itself. And I will give that to you in just a moment. So the porter hears this knocking. Here's this knocking. And the knocking is insistent. And how do you feel when someone keeps knocking on your door? What emotion fills you? Annoyance, of course. And he's, he's drunk. So imagine that you're all very tired and you wake up, you've been drinking uh, Coca-Cola all night and you have a caffeine hangover when you wake up and you're just, oh, you're groggy and you're, someone just keeps knocking, you know, that bang, 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 that I don't know how that'll record in any case. Yeah, sorry, maybe Miss Carr will uh, knock back at us. In any case, you just hear it. It's imploring and he's just, oh, what is this infernal knocking? And he says, Here's a knocking indeed. Notice all the references to hell here, indicating what it is he is saying, which place it is that Macbeth's home has become. Here's a knocking indeed. If a man were porter of a hell gate, oh yeah, also we don't, we don't use that word anymore. Porter, you may be wondering, what is a porter? It's a doorman. It comes from the word porta portai in Latin, which means gate or door. Um, and in fact, the word portal that we use comes from this, or port which, you know, we have a seaport here in San Diego. In any case, here's a knocking indeed. If a man were a porter of hell gate, so this guy is sort of like a, the, uh, the porter to uh, the damned. What is the name of the porter to the... I guess I can think of two things. Who is the guard of Hades? The three-headed dog. Cerberus. But also in Dante's Inferno, who is the judge of the dead who assigns people their different places, yes? Minos. Minos. Very good. So he's sort of like a mixture of both of these in this case. If a man were porter of Hellgate, he should have old turning the key, knocking with a knock, knock, knock. Who's there in the name of Beelzebub? Beelzebub, you should know, and if we were reading Milton this year, we would see him. He is the second in command to Lucifer in hell, the so-called Lord 
of the flies. Here's a farmer that hanged himself on the expectation of plenty. Oh, well, we have a reference here to death and suicide. Come in time. Have napkins and owl about you. Here you'll sweat for it. Knocking within. Knock, knock, knock. Who's there in the other devil's name? Another reference to devils. Faith. Here's an equivocator. This will be a second major theme. Talking about equivocation and the ambiguous use of language. The opposite of the appropriate use of language, which is to express truth and information between people. That could swear in both the scales against either scale. Who committed treason enough for God's sake? So we have a suicide. We have treason. Yet could not equivocate to heaven. Oh, come in, equivocator. That is That does seem to be a fairly oblique reference to Father Henry Garnett, who wrote the work on equivocation, who was himself a Jesuit priest. Jesuits were known for a way of reasoning called casuistry, which was overly fine reasoning, as well as by using their profound intellects to equivocate, to speak in an ambiguous way so as not to admit the truth of their actions. In fact, Henry Garnett, Father Henry Garnett, was one of the people implicated in the planning of the gunpowder plot. And so... The fact that there would be mention of equivocating in a negative light related to hell would very much please James I while listening to this. In any case, knocking within. Knock, knock, knock. Again, notice how many times do we see the knock? Three times. Three times that theme of three. Again, here. Who's there? Faith. Here's an English tailor come hither for stealing out of a French hose. The English, of course, always make fun, fun of the French and vice versa. The French call the English crude, and the English often call... French, uh, well, it's hard to say. Uh, I don't know that they necessarily call them lazy, but there is a small antipathy between them. One, of course, being a Catholic country, one, of course, being a Protestant country, and, of course, being separated just by a very small channel. And in any case, it's a very, it's like a sibling rivalry. Knocking within. Knock, knock, knock. Never at quiet. What are you? But this place is too cold for hell. Very interesting reference there. We, of course, know in the inferno, the deepest bowels of hell, it is actually not hot, but what? Cold. cold. I'll... Devil porter it no further. A third reference there to devils, demons, hell. I had thought to have let in some of all professions that go the primrose way to everlasting bonfire. Everlasting bonfire is obviously another reference where to where? Hell. Yes, very good. And so it's very interesting. This is both a humorous scene to try and uh, restore some warmth to the ice now in our veins from seeing this icy cold murder of... Duncan, but also it's letting us know what the home of Macbeth has become. It is also making some comment on the psychological nature of hell. What has made this physical place once so heavenly now a hellish place? What has Macbeth just done? The murder of a king. Treason has been done. That which would make one that which would grant entrance to one to the coldest part of hell for Dante. Because we, we recall the ninth circle of hell, where the frozen river of Cocytus is, is covered in what? It's, it's full of traitors and covered in what? Ice. Ice and cold, right. And so it is as if what Shakespeare here is saying is that hell is no physical place, but rather a place created by the actions and the choices of whom? People, yes, the only creatures that can make choices. And so very interesting. It's a funny scene, but it's also a psychologically very deep and symbolic scene. In any case, continue. Macduff and Lennox have come to meet Duncan, 
And they want to leave from Inverness. And remember that Inverness is the name of the castle of Macbeth. And so they've come to collect the king. Oh, well, oh joyous. We can tell where this is going to go. And uh, Macbeth, who's just awakened, or yawn, he, he hasn't actually just awakened, this is part of his ruse, tells, uh, why don't you go ahead, Macduff, and get Duncan? It was Macduff, in, in any case. I couldn't recall whether it was Lennox or he. In any case, uh, Macduff then comes back screaming the news that the king has been murdered. And, and then something weird. We then get this new piece of information that we did not expect. We hear that the king's guards have been killed, and Macbeth admits that he had killed them. And in fact, upon receiving this news, Lady Macbeth faints, and there is, some, there is some question in the scholarship about whether she faints because she is acting, or she faints because of how easy it was for Macbeth to now kill two new people without telling her. And that's a very, I think, psychologically interesting thing to notice. A... He just killed one person at night, and he seemed to experience tremendous psychological conflicts from this. Will Neptune's ocean ever wipe away the blood on my hands? Wherefore could I not say amen when I most needed blessing? And now we find that he has not just committed one murder, but three, two new ones. And the fact that he didn't tell his wife beforehand shows that he is autonomously murdering. It's almost like she might be fainting because... She realizes that she has released a what into the world? A monster, indeed. Because this is a monstrous act. It goes against their plan. It doesn't even seem to be highly rational. Because it is highly suspicious that he would have killed the two people that could have done what? They are the only two people that could have done what? If they were supposedly the murderers of Duncan, what could they tell us? What happened? What happened? At the very least, we want them alive so that we can in, uh, interrogate them and say, what happened? Why did you kill the king? Who put you up to this? But if we kill them, can we get that information? No. I would say that is highly suspicious behavior by Macbeth. Why would you kill the two people that might give you some insight into this situation? Probably because you're covering your own what? Tracks, of course. Of course. In any case, Macbeth gives, I would say, a very, a very flimsy excuse. He says, well, when I saw the dead king, how was I supposed to use reason? Passion overtook me. And so, and I killed those traitors. It's like, well, they were asleep. That's not even a real execution. And what do you mean that passion overtook you for the king? Shouldn't, uh, I don't know, shouldn't a desire to do justice overtake you? It's, it's I don't know. It doesn't quite sit right with me. Perhaps, it, perhaps you have some understanding that I don't. Yes. Why would he, he should tell someone first instead of just killing them and then going to sleep? It was one more time? He, like, Beth just killed them and went to sleep, and then someone else found out that um, the king had died. Why didn't Beth just tell someone? I think he actually kills them right in this scene. He doesn't kill them beforehand, because remember, he doesn't go back into the chamber. So it's actually when Macduff finds the king's body dead... Macbeth then enters the room, then sees the sleeping porters, and then kills them, hoping, or rather, kills them, hoping that people accept his excuse that he kills them out of passion, rather than thinking, hmm, best to change the original plan, kill two additional people in order to maintain his uh, safety, his, his reputation. In fact, that would be a theme as we continue on. 
Macbeth will have to continue to kill people in order to disguise his evil doing. More and more people, and actually the more he does that, the more it will become obvious that he is the evildoer rather than uh, less obvious. And so Macduff tells Lady Macbeth the details of the murder and the reciting of them in a woman's ear. He says if he were to tell her everything about it, the reciting of them in a woman's ear would kill her as she heard of them. And so the scene will end with this. Malcolm and Donalbane, the sons of, of uh, King Duncan, now one who is going to be or should be coronated but will not be, decide what it is they're going to do. And they think that the killer who has killed their father is still alive. They do not accept the account that these two guards acted alone, or that it was even these two guards that killed the king themselves. And so they decide to flee because they think their lives are in what? Danger. Danger, of course. And so they split where they're going to go so that they cannot be easily murdered together. Malcolm to England and Donald Bain to Ireland, in fleeing from Scotland, can either become king. Ah, and so who shall become king, just as predicted by the three weird sisters? Macbeth himself. Very good. All right, Act 2, Scene 4. Outside Macbeth's castle, an old man and Thane Ross talk of strange occurrences the night before. And then, this will be, uh, again, another recurring theme of the fact that the actions of human have consequences on the external world. In fact, we will see an opposing theme to that, too, that the actions of humans also have internal consequences on humans as well. Macbeth and Lady Macbeth's internal psychological states being evidence for that. But the heavens, troubled by men's sins, punishing this bloody world. The night was stormy, it was dark. Even the sun was dark, snuffed out by the darkness of night. Welcome, welcome. Take a seat back there. And so, it's almost as if the darkness of the deeds within Macbeth's castle were reflected in the storminess and the darkness of the night. In fact, there's a very famous biblical story about during the death of Jesus, supposedly what happened to the sun, what sort of solar phenomenon occurred. It was an eclipse, supposedly. It was an eclipse also sort of suggesting this scene that physical reality mimics that which is done by humans. Very anthropomorphic way of looking at the world. A very mythological way of looking at the world rather than, we would say, empirically scientific. But very powerful, very powerful. In any case, Duncan's beautiful and well-bred horses became cannibals and ate each other even which is something which is very weird. In fact, the only mythological correlate for that I can really find is Heracles, during his 12 labors, had to defeat these horses of Diomedes, not the Diomedes, son of Tidius, we know from the Iliad, but what was known about these horses is that they were cannibal horses. Very weird sorts of untamed horses. In any case, weird things have happened. The sun has gone dark. There was a terrible storm. Horses are eating each other. Some weird, goofy stuff. Some stuff outside of nature has happened. This is, of course, a comment on what thing outside of nature in the normal uh, range of human activities has happened within the castle. That should never happen. Murder, a regicide. A man has killed his better. The man that he should be defending. Some interesting notes. In any case... 
McDuff and Ross agree that Malcolm and Donald Bain's quick departure from Scotland sure makes them look guilty, even though they were running away from the murderer themselves. And we know, through dramatic irony, that they were not the murderers. Obviously, it was Macbeth with his wife as accomplice to help clean up the job. If the father dies and then they run very quickly, it does make them look a little guilty. The one problem I would say with this sort of reasoning is that this hurts the intention of the killing. Because if it had been the fact that Malcolm had killed his father, the reason he would kill his father would probably be for what? To become king himself. But he has done what in this moment? He's fled. And so... I don't see what his intention for killing his father would be here if he is not receiving the crown. Again, everything doesn't what up? Add up. Exactly. Everything's not adding up exactly. And so then Macbeth, and here's some foreshadowing. Macbeth is in scone for his coronation. And uh, Ross asks Macduff, are you going to go to the coronation? And Macduff says, no. He has no intention going, perhaps suggesting that Macduff does not think that this coronation is what? It's legitimate, or just, or right. <coughs> suggesting that suspicion is now clouding the air, just as the sun was darkened. Yes, there is a... Yes, and it's interesting, you even see this in modern myths. If you ever watch the... Uh, the first three Star Wars is not the ones that were ordinarily created first, but the ones that are called Episode 1 through 3. When Yoda, a figure of the old wise man, tries to see the future, he says that it is. Does anybody recall? Does anybody watch Star Wars? Not light, but... Dark. Very dark and hard to see. Exactly. Exactly. Alright, let's get on to Act 3, Scene 1. Banquo is now invited as a guest of honor to a feast of Macbeth. And this will be... Uh, this will be a fairly gnarly feast. It will not go uh, according to plan. And the thing about Banquo now is that Banquo has seen the witches in the same way that Macbeth has seen the witches. And Banquo also knows what the witches predicted for Macbeth, that he be king. Banquo also knows that the king died in Macbeth's home in Varnes, and that Macbeth has now become king. It is very possible that Banquo has connected the what's, the dots, and has understood that Macbeth has become king by his own action, by his own act of murder. And so Macbeth thinks, hmm, hmm, perhaps he has connected the dots. Also, it happens to be the case that there was a prophecy linked to Banquo and his children. What was the prophecy about Banquo and his children? That though he will not himself become king, his children will. And so something interesting here is we'll have to see whether it is fate or free will which makes that prophecy become true because Macbeth. He invites Banquo to the feast, but Banquo says he must go riding with his son Flans. Perfect opportunity for what? Riding out in the woods. Not a lot of people around. What could easily happen? They could get murdered by murderers. Interestingly enough. And so, Macbeth's third soliloquy. To be king is nothing. This is what I referenced earlier. But to be safely king. My immortal soul I have given to the devil to make the children of Banquo kings. He says, why have I killed the king? Why have I done evil just so that Banquo's children can rule? No, 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 no. Better 
to get rid of Banquo. He sort of gives two reasons here. A, he does not want Banquo's children to rule on the throne. He would like his children to. B, Banquo could very possibly have connected the dots uh, linking Macbeth to this murder. No, much safer just to get rid of Banquo and much better for the pro uh, for Macbeth's future, he thinks, to get rid of Banquo. The, the sort of, uh, I would say, uh, problem with his logic here is that if he killed the king to fulfill his fate to become king, then it will still remain the case that Banquo's fate will be to have children that become kings. So no matter what, what will still happen? Banquo's kids will become kings. And we'll see how that begins to happen here. Because Macbeth then persuades two murderers. And you'll notice that there are only two murderers in this scene. Look closely at it. Act 3, scene 1. To assassinate Banquo and Fleance. Fleance is his son. As they return to the castle. He even is very clever at managing to say that uh, it was actually Banquo who is responsible for the ills of these people. So they have reason or motive to kill Banquo. And so something interesting happens here. Act 3, scene 2. We are at the feast itself. And Lady Macbeth notices that her husband is upset and preoccupied. Makes sense. He's just murdered a king. But that's not why. There's something in the weeds. There's something that is happening here. There is a, a murder that is, another murder is supposed to be happening. His fourth and fifth victims. He tells her that he has something, Macbeth tells her that he has something awful and infamous planned, but will not reveal any more of the details to her. He is their relationship. While once they were so close, so close that he would even tell her of his deepest ambitions, these three witches, now he is keeping things from her. He kept his murder of the two guards from her and his plan to do so. He kept also his plan to kill Banquo and Flans from her. Perhaps he would have benefited from her counsel here. It will be impossible to tell for him from here on out. In any case, Act 3, Scene 3, Banquo's murder itself. The murder is a fairly gruesome scene. And uh, Banquo is taken out. And Fleance runs, and Fleance escapes. And something interesting here is that though Macbeth had enlisted the help of two murderers, does anybody recall how many murderers happened to be at the scene? Three. Three. There is some scholarly opinion. Well, what do you think? Who do you think that third disguised beggar could potentially be? Yes? Macbeth. Possibly Macbeth. Some people think that it was Macbeth himself. That's right that he wanted to be in on the action, that he wanted to make sure that things got done. I don't know what I think about that. I'll have to read a little bit closer myself. But in any case, there were only two murderers that Macbeth told, uh, that Macbeth gave his plans to, but now there are three. Could this, too, be the borrowed robes? Why do you dress me in borrowed robes? And again, this, were, this sort of recalls to me the idea of a king in rags, the idea of, say, Odysseus, and all is not as it seems. Indeed. Indeed. Well, here, too, we also see how it is that the prophecy is going to come true. Is Banquo ever going to be king now? Certainly not. He's very much what? Dead. Dead. Very good. But his son, what is he? Alive. Still alive. Still alive. And so, has Macbeth accomplished anything to make him feel safer now? 
No, he's just further bloodied. His hands killed his best friend. And now his best friend's son has all the more reason to someday come back and supplant him. Too bad for Macbeth. And so we have a disastrous feat. Act 3, scene 4. Banquo will be dead, but Banquo will make an appearance. But only to whom? Macbeth. In fact, at one point, Macbeth will look in his seat, the things will say, come, join us. And they'll say, but somebody's already in my seat. And then they'll scream in horror because he'll realize it's who? Banquo. Banquo. <gasps> who did this? Who did this devilry, he'll say. And so, uh, well, uh, he did it, right? It is his own fault that he has now seen things, that he is appearing delusional or schizophrenic. In any case, Macbeth worries about Banquo being late, where could Banquo be? Well, hopefully he's dead to Macbeth. The first murderer then delivers the news that, his Banquo, that Banquo is dead, and this is part of the reason why I think that the third murderer is not Macbeth, because when he receives this news, he seems to be fairly shocked by it, but again, nothing is as it seems. And in any case, then Banquo's ghost appears, and Macbeth starts to scream at all the others, uh, and what all the others see is an empty chair. They cannot see what he has done. He can see what he has done. He reacts to that. Lady Macbeth does a fabulous job of being a host here. She tells everybody that it's just an affliction of the mind that he's had ever since he was young, and pay no attention to him, because it will just, uh, it, it will make it all the worse, and it will make him feel quite embarrassed. And so they are supposed to, the thanes are all uh, here at this table. All of these ruling men are supposed to accept the fact that their new king is sort of crazy, and that if they pay attention to his craziness, they will make him feel embarrassed about it, so they need to just ignore it. And so can you just imagine how terrible a dinner that would be, where someone is constantly yelling out about a murderer and uh, from out of nowhere? I mean, how would you feel? Comfortable or uncomfortable the whole time? Pretty uncomfortable, right, right. He, ha he has been like this since boyhood, she says. In any case, Macbeth, and this is one of his quotes about it, he tries to act cool. I do forget, do not muse at me, my most worthy friends. I have a strange infirmity, which is nothing to those that know me. Come love and health to all. Then I'll sit down, give me some wine, fill full. I drink to the general joy, oh, the whole table. And to our dear friend Banquo, whom we miss. Would he were here. To all and him we thirst and all to all. And of course he appears in quite shocks Macbeth. It's hard to run from that, which you've done. All right, Act 3, Scene 5, I just want to tell you something very quickly about that, which is this. We're not going to talk about Act 3, Scene 5, because it was an interpolation, we think, by Thomas Middleton. But I do want you to remember that we see here the rule of three, and that this would upset the rule of three. This would make the third of four times we see the witches, but we want to accept that we only legitimately see them three times. Here's what you need to know about three. Remember, three witches. Three ranks of Macbeth, Thane of Glam, Thane of Cawdor, as well as King. Three times seeing the witches, and of course three murderers themselves. We'll start with scene, uh, or act three, scene six next time, and we'll move on till the end of the play.